do long for that time in another place. I want to encourage you that if you have your copy of God's Word with you, to please open it to Revelation 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback copy located in the back of one of the chairs near where you are seated. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. Rather, I want to highlight what I think are the main points of this chapter. There's a lot that occurs in these verses. But I'm afraid sometimes we may miss the forest for the trees. Now tonight we'll go into more detail in our, win or our Sunday night Bible study and talking about this chapter. This is the chapter where the culmination of God's judgment is reached. It's been building to this point. Revelation has used the imagery of seals that open a scroll and judgment begins to spill out over the earth. A few chapters earlier, trumpets blared and as each trumpet sounded, God's judgment intensified upon the earth. And now in chapter 16, bowls, bowls of his wrath are poured out. His judgment has reached its culmination. But there are some things that are repeated that draw attention to the main point of this chapter. I want to begin reading in verses 5 through 7 because there's an extended song, a doxology of all things, a praise in the midst of these horrendous pictures of God's judgment that unfold as His wrath is poured out. I'll also read verses 9, a portion of verse 10 and 11, and verse 21, beginning at verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was for you have brought these judgments for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink it is what they deserve and I heard the altar saying yes Lord God the Almighty true and just are your judgments look if you will to verse 9 verse 8 describes the fourth angel pouring out the bowl of God's wrath. Verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The beginning of verse 10 records the fifth angel pouring out his bowl on the throne of the beast and darkness darkness begins to spread. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Look, if you will, down to verse 21. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hell. 
because the plague was so severe. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father, it's humbling to read these words. And Lord, I know that in spending time this week in this chapter, there's a heaviness to it, and rightly so, Lord. We often speak of your judgment. So often, Lord, I, I fear that we have lost some of the gravitas of that moment. So this morning, Lord, please open our hearts and our minds to know the reality of who you are. Incline our hearts towards you. Father, bring us to seek you, to repent, to turn to you, Lord. Give us ears to hear the warning of this chapter. I ask this in the name of Jesus, my Lord. Amen. Generally speaking, as Americans, we don't do very well with warnings. Whether it be warnings about unhealthy eating, warnings about unhealthy patterns of life, or warnings of potential danger. For example, since about 1870, around 700 people have died at the Grand Canyon. Now that's a huge, huge number because it's a huge place. When you look at the Grand Canyon, you recognize that it's 277 miles long, up to 18 miles wide, and often it, there's a depth of over 6,000 feet. The majority of those who have lost their life at the Grand Canyon has been in, in plane crashes sightseeing planes that for some reason have lost control. Others have died from exposure because the temperature can vary greatly and they just weren't prepared. Some, some have passed away because of flooding. But what is perhaps most tragic out of all those tragic events are the number of people who have gone over the edge simply because they ignored the warning. In 1992, a 38-year-old father decided to play a joke on his teenage daughter as they were visiting the Grand Canyon. He got her attention and he jumped over a retaining wall that had signs about not going over it. And then he started to act like he was falling. And about that point, the ground gave way. And he plunged over 400 feet to his death. In 2012, an 18-year-old woman who was hiking the North Rim decided to venture off the beaten path. Even though there are signs clearly warning, do not get off the path, she wanted to get a picture at a point known as Inspiration Point. She sat down on the rocky ledge, and the ledge gave way, and she fell 1,500 feet to her death. Those are tragic and the tragedy is compounded because they were preventable had the warnings been heeded. Revelation is a book of warning. It warns believers, don't become apathetic with the world. It warns the non-believer saying, if you have never placed your faith in Christ, 
Don't presume that this world will always continue. Revelation, time and time again, gives warning. It gives warning in multiple ways. For example, up on the screen, there's a chart. Now, I apologize that it's not larger than it is, but tonight I'll distribute this. When you look at a comparison between the trumpet judgments I mentioned earlier and the bold judgments in this chapter, you'll see they are very similar. They follow a similar pattern because they are given the same warning. For example, trumpet one and bowl number one. Both of them are poured out on the earth. Number two, trumpet two and bowl number two. They are something affects the seas. A mountain is thrown into the sea. Judgment is poured into the sea, turning it to blood. The third trumpet, a star falls into rivers and springs, turning it bitter. The fourth bowl, or I'm sorry, the third bowl is poured into rivers and springs, turning them into blood. The fourth trumpet signifies the sun turning dark. The fourth bowl affects the sun also, but in this the heat is intensified. Trumpet five and bowl five both deal with darkness. Trumpet six and bowl six deal with the Euphrates River. But notice something that happens in verse seven. How do the trumpet judgments and the bowl trumpets end? Trumpet bowl trumpets, the brumpets, they both end the same way. The seventh trumpet, the kingdom of God comes. Bowl number seven, it is done. They both come to a culmination because they're both repeating the same idea. God's judgment is moving and it culminates in the arrival of His kingdom. But the difference is this, with the trumpets, it's mediated a bit. Only one third of the world is given, is affected. There's still a chance to repent. But with the bowls, judgment is final. It affects all the world. In the trumpets, there's an interlude, a pause that says, reflect, consider. There is no pause in chapter 16. Things move quick, quickly. They move rapidly toward the culmination and a finality that is seen in verse 17. When the seventh angel pours out his bowl in the air and this loud voice comes out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. It is over. The point of these warnings is to bring us to consider our lives. To read this and stop for a moment and ask yourself the crucial question of what will happen when your life comes to an end. What will happen when this world comes to an end? This is a call to consider what will happen when the foundation you and I have built our lives upon, what happens when it crumbles? What happens if you have banked your life, your identity, your hope in making enough money to solve all of your problems? What's going to happen when the stock market crashes and money's not worth anything? What will happen if you're building your identity and thinking, man, I just want to, I just want to have a good time in life. I just want to meet the right person. I just want to enjoy life to the max. But what happens at that moment when your body is broken and your spirit is, is, is chained by addiction? What happens at that moment? This is a call to consider. Do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? I want to ask you to consider some very, very important questions with me this morning. 
I want to ask you to consider who God is. Every one of us in here is a theologian. Did you know every person is a theologian? Because everybody has a view of God. Some are atheists and they simply have a very brief view of God. He doesn't exist. But others, others take different views. For some people, to them, God is a therapist. He's that, that, that great counselor in the sky that whenever I have a problem, he's there and I can go to him. Some just see God as the man upstairs. He's watching and he's willing to help. But man, he's very kind. He's not going to interfere in your business until you ask him to. So God is like that kindly gentleman that's just there. And if we want him, we can call him. But otherwise, he'll leave us alone. To others, God is just a distant concept. To some, he's just a theory constructed by societies to keep order and chaos from spreading. The theory may or may not be true, but they say, well, the belief in God works and is necessary. To some of you in here, God is only love. There is no wrath. But for others, you're on the, the far end of that. You see God as only wrath and no love. Revelation is a book that is centered upon who God is. As these judgments unfold, it is telling us about who He is. And that's why in the middle, at the very beginning of this, in verses 5 through 7, there's a doxology, a praise. This angel in charge of the waters begins praising God. Verse 7, he hears, he hears this voice from the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. When verse 5 begins, just are you, it's a way of saying, God, you are just. Now to make that statement is more than just saying that God does the right thing. To say that God is just is to say that God does what is right because He is right. There is no standard outside of God judging His actions or intentions. If there were, that standard would be God. God is the one who sets the standard and by His very actions we come to understand what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. There's nothing outside of God to measure God. So therefore, anything God does is right and true. And just. We need a standard. Today, if you were to, to, to go to the grocery store and you were to look at all the two liter bottles that they're there in the drink aisle, and you began to look closely and say, you know what? I think this company's trying to cheat me. That doesn't look like two liters. You know how you could prove it's two liters? Very simple. You get your plane ticket, you take the two liter bottle after you check it through customs. You fly to France because in France there is the International Bureau of Weights and Measurements where the metric system is gauged to be accurate. It's the standard. The same is true with time. If you really want to know what time it is, you simply have to go to the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England. That's the standard for time. To know the exact measurement or the exact time, you use those places objectively. Where do we gauge God? We don't. God is His own judge. His actions are true and right. For He is the standard of justice. He is the standard for what is good. And because God is the very standard of justice, His rulings are always right 
and fair. Verse 6 emphasizes this. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. You have given them blood to drink. Look at the end. It is what they deserve. God, as you punish the world, you are punishing the world in accord for its rebellion against you and for how it has persecuted your children. This is emphasized once again in verse 5. Oh, holy one. It's saying there's none like God. This idea of God being holy means that He is set apart. There is none that is like Him. And what is interesting is that this chapter is shown, is, is written to show how God indeed is set apart from all the false gods of this world. You'll notice that what unfolds in chapter 16 is referred to as plagues often. And these plagues model what happened in Exodus when God brought plagues upon Egypt to bring about the freedom of His children. You'll see the same things. The sun turned dark. You'll see boils and sores. You'll see frogs. There are frogs in this chapter. You'll see water turned to blood. Everything that is done here, it mirrors what happened in Exodus. Now why is that? One, it's because God is getting ready to deliver His people and to defeat the power that rises up against Him. But the second thing is this. Do you know every plague in Exodus took place to show the superiority of God to the Egyptian gods? For example, Egypt. They worshipped the god Ra. Ra was the sun god. Ra is the god who makes the sun rise and set. But you know what our god does? Our god takes the sun and he turns the sun black. And Ra can't do anything about it. The Egyptians worshipped a god that was a frog. I don't know why, but they did. What does our god do? You worship a god that's a frog, have all the frogs you want. And all of a sudden there's this tsunami of frogs in the land. And the frog god can't do anything to stop it because he is no god at all. In Exodus, the plagues were given to show that there is only one god. And here it is the same truth. There is no God other than God. There is no power greater than God. There is no satisfaction greater than God. There is no salvation other than God. So this is the call to consider who God is. He is just. He will hold us accountable for our sins. He is fair. He will judge the world rightly. And He is here. Look at the end of verse 5. Or in the middle of it. Just are you a holy one who is and who was. Do you notice something lacking there? Prior to this, every time that, uh, that name or those titles were used, it says who was, who is, and who is to come. You know why the phrase who is to come is left off? He's here now. He's here. Judgment has come. There's no more delay. This chapter is that flashing red light that says turn to Jesus. Because that's where we see the mercy of God in this. We see His mercy reflected in the tragic refrain in verses 9 and 11. They did not repent. They did not give Him glory. Verse 11, they did not repent of their deeds. Verse 21 shows how deeply sin becomes entrenched in our hearts. They cursed God. Rather than turn to Him, they cursed Him. Now, would you, 
as we consider God, would you also consider this? What would it take for people to turn to Him? Consider what what these people faced and they did not turn to God. They endured suffering, physical pain, and they still did not turn. They saw the demonic reality behind the rebellion. Look at verses 12 and 13 and 14. The sixth angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water dries up. This is to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Look at verse 13. And I, that is John, saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Guess what he's doing? He's taking away the mask here. You want to see what's behind rebellion against God? It's the demonic. You want to see what drives people away from God? Here it is. It is the demonic. It is the unclean spirits. So he's drawing this very clear division. To reject God is to side with the demons. But the people still did not repent. Verse 19, the truth of the world system is, re- is destroyed. It's shown to be false. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now remember, Babylon in this time was Rome, but it also, in apocalyptic language, is more than Rome. It's any worldly system that rises up against God with the audacity to say, we are at the pinnacle of all that is. And now in a moment, Babylon, the system of wealth, power, and pleasure. The focus of people's hopes and dreams. The center point of their existence is gone. Wiped away. Now chapters 17 and 18 will highlight this specifically. From here on out, we telescope in, and in 17 and 18, we will see clearly how Babylon falls. Chapter 19, we will see the judgment of God. And chapter 20, we get a glimpse into that another time and another place that we heard about earlier. But the point here is that the idol of wealth is gone. The false god of pleasure is shown to be false. The earthly security that we long for is demolished. So would you consider that the things of this world are temporary? They cannot save. They're broken. They're broken from the get-go. A few months ago, our staff received a a box in the mail. And it was a gift from a ministry that every now and then there's a perk. You know, a ministry will send you a calendar or something like that. Thinking, hey, there's more where this comes from. Just, you know, join our ministry. Well, this was a great gift because inside the box, there were coffee cups. Nice coffee cups, big coffee cups. But here was the problem. When we opened the box, there were six cups in it, but only two had survived the trip. The other four, well, two of them were just crumbled into shreds. I mean, just 
like somebody had sneezed ceramic. The other two were chipped. The handles had fallen off. Clearly, you couldn't use them, which was quite a dilemma for the staff. What do you do when you receive a free gift that's broken? Do you send it back? Thank you for your free gift. Could we have some more? We decided just to roll with it. But here's the point. From the minute we opened the box, they were no good. Oh, you could try to use them, but it would be deadly. That's the point here. From the very get-go, the things of this world are broken. You can't use them. Oh, you can, you can get by as long as you keep them in their proper place. But if we begin to lift up the things of this world that are good and we lift them to an ultimate place, we will find out they cannot satisfy. See, we will build our identity on something. We will look to something for salvation. Many of us, you know what we're thinking? If I could just get enough money, my problems would be over. But have you ever considered that no, they wouldn't be? And by the way, have you ever considered that every piece of currency in every country of this world will one day burn before God? It will amount to nothing. Others, you're trusting in just your charm. And man, your salvation is your own ability. But you know what? We age. The abilities that we take so much pride in now one day become a little less sharp. And one day begin to fade. Some, your, your idea of salvation is finding the right person. If you could find Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, then man, everything will fall into place. And so your life is one search from another. But do you hear me clearly? The party will come to an end. And when it does, it will not be pleasant. So the question is, is what will it take? We read this chapter, and I encourage you, read through it, because I just hit the main points. We read this and we think, how in the world could those people endure such things and not repent? But that's the wrong question. The question is, how can you and I read these things and not repent? Because the reason we don't turn to God is the very same reason they don't. Look at what John said in John chapter 3. You'll see it up on the screen. This is the judgment, okay? Here's the verdict. The light is coming to the world. That's Jesus. Jesus has come. But people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. Now, how does that factor in? Well, we see love, first of all, but the reason they don't turn is explained more in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. We become fearful that if we repent, what will people think? If they knew what I'd struggled with, what would they think? And then also this reminds us we become deceived by the things of this world, by our sin, thinking this is satisfaction. Jeremiah spoke to this. You'll see it up on the screen in Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Don't trust your heart. Because we have a tendency to say, okay, well, you know what? Before things get real bad, real bad, I'll repent. Don't presume upon God, one, that you'll ever have the chance. And number two, that you will want to at that time. 
These people here in chapter 16 may have very well said, one day I'll repent. When things get bad, then I'll turn. But when the moment came, they had no desire to. What will it take? See, God knows our hearts. He tests the mind. That's why He speaks truth. Turn to Him. It may take having everything removed to get your attention. In 2010, 33 miners in Chile were trapped 2,000 feet underground. Imagine that. 2,000 feet underground for three months. It's said that very early in the ordeal, one of the men who was a Christian, a man by the name of Don Jose Enriquez, turned to a fellow miner and said, Mario, God is the only way out of this. Mario turned to him and said, Don Jose, we know you are a Christian man. Will you please lead us in prayer? It said at that moment that, that Don Jose Enriquez became the pastor as the men were in the room of refuge. And many of them reflected on the prayers that he prayed. It said that at one time as he bowed his head, he prayed something like this, Father, we are not the best men, but please have pity on us. Men who survived that, and all of them did, reflected later. A man by the name of Victor said at that moment, I knew what he said was true because I drank to hide my fears. Another one by the name of Zamora said, My anger is too quick. Pedro Cortez began thinking about how he had abandoned his wife and daughter and the Spirit of God was moving upon him because guess what? Everything was stripped away. And when you reach that moment where everything is gone, you recognize what is of eternal value. Please consider this moment. Please consider the grace of God and the justice of God. At the risk of sounding melodramatic, I ask you to consider this very next minute. Said that within the next minute, 58 airplanes will take off around the world. 116 people will get married. In the next minute, 7.1 billion human hearts will beat over 500 billion times. And in the next minute, the next 60 seconds, 108 people will die. Some of them may be ready. Some of them, though, may have said, give me just a little more time, a little more time, and then I will turn. Consider this moment. And I urge you, Please turn to God. The scripture says His judgment will come. And I believe we are already seeing it poured out on the earth now. Will you come to Him? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me.